You should start singing. Start where? God bless the race down in Africa. Is this going to be, are we going to put this on Yeah, that's our intro song this week. Wow. Thank you for tuning in to the second week of It Was Either This or That Was Our Intro Song Called Africa by the good band Toto. Illegally co-opted in the second week by us. Yeah. Who are not at all concerned about copyright issues. Which, that rendering was just so bad that no court will ever go after us. No. Jamie rightfully refused to record an opening Did you song ask for us. Him? No, I didn't ask yeah, him. Yeah, see, I think he's holding. It's going to be our birthday present. Yeah, he's like, oh, guys, okay. yeah. this is what I want to do in this, my sabbaticals. Record you guys singing. Oh my gosh, what a gift! Thank you, Jamie. So Taylor, yeah, ask me how I'm doing. Josh, how are you doing? I'm a, I'm a eleven out of ten right now. Wow, eleven out of ten. Why? Well, thank you for asking, Taylor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, we sure. got several good things going on. One, I just got back from the Holy Land yesterday. Sure, right. At this time Israel. yesterday, I was walking down the sidewalks of my favorite street in one of my favorite cities, having just eaten at what I consider a swanky pizza joint. Ooh, um, punch swanky pizza. pizza. It's, a, it's a chain now, so anytime you go chain, you, you downgrade your awesomeness. Sure. But it's like Sicilian, Neapolitan oh, style pizzas. Okay, so good pizza. And then I went and looked at Gilded Age mansions with my family before I went to the airport in Minnesota. That's a dream for you. On Summit Avenue. That was such a good day. And then I get here yeah. to Waco, Texas, and it is raining, and it yeah. is cloudy, and it is a cool 71-ish. Yeah. And that, my friend, is the edge of heaven. Yeah, the dream for you. Oh, gosh. Yeah. What a win-win. I am loving the weather. It feels so nice outside. Yeah. And then, so I ran this morning in okay. this weather, which is just delightful. And yeah. I mean this in the best way possible. All my kids are back in school. Yeah. So I come back here, and it is a box of peace. A silent yeah. box of, and I get the Gregorian chant going. Yeah. I get the incense going. incense going. Which we have going right now. Uh-huh. In my word, am I winning? Yeah. How about you? Um, I, um, I truly am loving this weather. I think it's delightful. I saw a friend yesterday that I haven't seen since quarantine started. Okay, so, so March. that was a dream. Yeah. I, Can I guess the friend? Of course. Do I know the friend? Please, you do. Do they live in Waco? They do. Female? Yes. 30s? Yes. Uh, works for Baylor? Yes. Lauren Weber? It was. Oh, bang. First wow, try. Wow. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, I saw Lauren yesterday. She is so wonderful. It was so good to see her. And so. Lauren Weber good. is an Enneagram 8 who I'm determined to get to like me someday. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she dislikes you. I don't okay. either. But, I, you know, I just, I can sense the energy and mm-hmm. I'm just like, don't mess. But yeah. um, we talked about this. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I think some 8s have a natural distrust of 3s. Yeah. Well, they should. And I'm a 3 who can say that. Yeah. I don't even trust all the 3s. Here we are. I don't even trust Enneagramming myself. Enneagramming again. Because I don't know myself. 3 101. <laughs> Three one oh one. Okay, Taylor. Yeah. Um, couple of things. We need to do the week roundup. Yeah. First, I have to tell you this. So I'm in the airports. Yeah. In Denver, Colorado. Uh-huh. And I happened to glance at one of those 38 newsstands by our water bottle kind of, and guess guess what's on the cover? Um, this isn't the sad thing yet. Guess who's on the cover? Oh, okay. Um, Giannis? It's, I don't know if it's a special edition or the most recent one. It's your gal Selena. Oh my gosh! Like thirty years or something, it said, or uh, twenty years or that's, whatever. It's also sad because it means thirty yeah, years since she, she died. Now she's your gal, right? She's a singer. She's my yes, like my number one gal. And I love Selena so. Who much. would you compare her to today? That's still doing it. Uh oh! Wow, what a great. I think if Selena, like, had never died. Okay. Um, I think it's like maybe we don't. Um, She's sort of like truly like Britney Spears esque. Like okay. it's like except she was a much better singer. I don't know. What's well, her best song I that I might know? Oh uh, I think maybe maybe one of the most popular cultural ones is like Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb. Can you sing that one for me? Yeah. Uh so just the chorus is like a bitty bitty bomb bomb. A bitty bitty bomb bomb. A bitty 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 bomb bomb. What what years was she doing it up big? It was like the early nineties. Yeah. Or the mid '90s. I wasn't really in that game. And you I were far talking. away. Yeah. You know you weren't here. Because she's a Texan. She is a Texan. Yeah. yeah. Isn't she from where? San Corpus Christi. Corpus. I knew it was south. Yeah. Okay. That makes me so excited. You know they're selling Selena Memorial cups at Stripes. 
Okay. I bought one truly the day before quarantine started. Maybe we just need to do a whole Selena episode. Ah, uh, oh my gosh. I would love it because I love Selena so much. She's so meaningful. And then the Selena movie, I think, is like really culturally. Was who, it, who played her? Jennifer Lopez. That's what I thought. That was her breakout role. Playing Selena. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I uh, I should have bought the magazine either for you or for me. So I could have been educated no on more. what you value or so I could have been a, a gift to you. Or could have been both because that's what you do with people magazines. Yeah. Yeah. You read them and then you pass them on. And then you pass them on. Maybe I'll go buy that this week. I do. The moment I knew I was real friends with Dylan Braddock, Uh and not just like we work together, was one time he told me he didn't know who Selena was. And I thought, wow. I didn't think I can't ever speak to this person again. I thought, we have to get Dylan an education on Selena. And that was when I was like, okay, so I'm friends with this person and not just coworkers. Yeah. Because if I had just been coworkers with him, I would have been like, I guess I'll never speak to Dylan Braddock again. Maybe we should just fire him. <laughs> yeah, because well, I, I have power to make those calls. I know that Selena's important to you, so I wanted to mention that. Thank you okay, so much. Okay, now let's move to bigger news. Yeah. This week, uh, on Friday, was it? Mm-hmm. News broke that yeah. RGB. BG. BG. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. BG, sorry. Yeah. You know what it is? It's RG3. That's what oh. always gets in my head. Yeah. RG, I think RG3. Um, initials can be confusing. Well, so anyways, she passed away. Yeah. Um, let's leave aside the the fears and the political realm and let's just celebrate her. Yeah. She was one of your heroes. Definitely. Actively. Like, I, I've seen all the memoirs on your desk. Mm-hmm. I remember you citing her. I remember you watched the documentaries. Oh, absolutely. You had invested in her. Um, just say a few words about what she meant to you. Well, I think some of it is, so both my parents, you know this, both my parents are lawyers. Mm-hmm. And my mom, obviously, is a woman. And she, um, so, but she has spent the majority of her life working in law, mm-hmm. which sort of during the course of that time from the 80s until now has, um, she certainly started out working in a very, like, male-dominated field. And... You know, I think that has inspired a lot of who I am and how I am as a person. And RBG also, you know, she is so, I think part of what is so inspiring about her to me is that she seems so convicted about the change that she wanted to create in this country. But she was always committed to doing it in a way that was like, that would bring other people along. You know, I think she really thought Mm. you can't just, like, legislate. I mean, I do think she thought a little bit you could legislate your way into change. But, like, you also need to bring people along with you if you're not changing people's minds um, or changing their understanding. um, Then you're not really changing much. Yeah. And I think I really love that. Also, she's, like, so, so, so intelligent. And I really respect that. Someone who can, like, craft an argument that is compelling um so i love those she things was appointed her. i think i heard 93 94 yes what i feel like she tipped in culture probably four or five years ago and maybe that was just her tipping in my world what do you think it was that she became so much more important to us you know that, what a good question that i don't know that i could answer like what was the social cultural moment um you know, I think at some point somebody created those, like, shirts, notorious RBG shirts. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know if there's, like, a a tipping point or a decision that did that or if it just was, like, a cultural moment that people embrace. I mean, I think some of it was, uh, you know, as we moved into a different, like, sociopolitical moment yeah. that um, sometimes things that seemed passe or normal or general all of a sudden you're paying a different amount of attention to them so that's a a very eloquent way to to put that yeah um i think too i'm wondering just if we're looking for moments Mm -hmm. she was well on her way but i remember when um kate mckinnon did the the thing on weekend update with the ginsburn (laughs) and um i feel like that sort of yes helped explode in popular conscious it's so crazy how snl can do that right they got some reach that'd be another good episode like you oh my gosh yeah you think about like um sarah palin and it's like when i think of sarah palin i really think mostly in my head i'm thinking of tina fey yeah you know right that's crazy oh pin in this let's talk about the movie bombshell in a few minutes okay Um, 
So another thing I want to say about Ginsburg, and uh-huh. we, we had mentioned this, is, and again, there's there's a real fear, let's just name that for people, in her passing. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and so I don't want to whitewash the scariness of the moment. Mm-hmm. However, I did want to, um, in, that, in that moment will come, however people feel about this, but um, in terms of just celebrating her life still, one of the things that I loved about her mm-hmm. was what we learned about her relationship with Scalia that yeah. was really publicized after his death. Yeah. But kudos to both of them. Yes. For using two of the most powerful positions in the country yeah. to demonstrate a civility and a candor and a way of disagreeing and maintaining relationship uh-huh. in a era of kind of Lieberman, McCain-esque sort of thing. Where really, it feels like it's virtually disappearing. It, yeah, it almost, I think, sort of seems made up like it seems like that west wing episode do you know which one i'm talking about have you watched the I west wing no oh my I'll gosh watch it and we'll do an episode okay um they have a really great episode about two different um nominees supreme court nominees who are just like very different but they respect each other's intellect mm-hmm. they respect each other's um passion they respect each other's belief you know inherent belief kind of and um, ultimately, you know, I think what that is is respecting the image of God in the other person. Yeah. And so I think that that stuff is always, uh, it's always a good reminder, you know, that, yeah. that we have, that we have to, we are called to respect that about other people. Well, thanks for reminiscing. I wanted to name her because that yeah. news felt large in our lives, in your yes, life. certainly. So it'd be like if Wendell Berry died for me, you know. Yeah. And that day will come and we'll have to talk about that one next. Hopefully not for 15 years. Yeah. Okay. Forever, maybe. This episode is called, it was either this or, because that's the name of our podcast, Mm -hmm. and the or this week is a purity ring. Yeah. Because I wanted to talk about purity culture (laughs) and sex. Yeah. So one thing I had said to Taylor now for listeners is that one thing I'm hoping for this podcast is that I can go a step further here. Um, because the the dialogue will allow for nuance that I can't do in sermons. In a mon- like yeah, in a mon- And Taylor a is such a helpful counter perspective, and so often she's right and just points out the ways I'm wrong, and I'm like not far enough in a conversation to speak about it publicly. Well, but I think also it's we are. I think we are good at disagreeing. Yeah, and like we, not. We can do that well. Yeah, it's yeah. never personal for me, and it's no. never personal for you. Right. Yeah. So, um, not that we have robust disagreements about this topic, but no. um, I had batted around doing a sermon about purity culture last god i don't know if it's spring or fall and, what is time Who and jamie down? wise is like why don't we like take a couple of months to read and think about it and mm-hmm. i ordered a few books and i'll mention a few of them but one of them was of course not evil's weber book shameless mm-hmm. which was helpful in a way i think we, we'll get into but the other one is helen fisher's book um oh gosh i don't even have the name but we're gonna listen to a uh, a clip from her podcast later on on being so okay. i wanted to start with five points about sex from okay. my worldview and this is coming okay. on the tales of last week where i talked about the difference in sexual ethics between me and gen z right and millennials even yeah even though i am technically maybe a millennial all right so here, this is spitballing it's very um you know i'm a three very technically black maybe. and white it's very forthright sure. and these are how i think about it but just trying to get the conversation going number one okay. I do think sex, out of a the context of a covenantal relationship, can be damaging. Number two, that being said, I can't find, in my opinion, one biblical text that will argue for sex explicitly inside marriage, right. especially as we know in the 21st century in Western civilization. Mm-hmm. Number three, beyond that, the Bible offers a confusing, sometimes violent, and dangerous picture of sex, which is different than condoning it, violence. Number four, sex is complicated. The more we admit that, the better off we'll be. And number five, sex is good. Okay. So, that's it. I think the other reason um, I feel this acutely, to give some context, uh-huh. is when I do premarital counseling, I talk about six issues. Mm-hmm. One is faith, family systems. The second session is communication and finances. And the third one is sex and children. And I grew up with an evangelical worldview. Yeah. So, I thought sex outside of marriage was sin and a discussion. Sure. Um, but... Now I'll have to say, when I'm doing these premarital conversations, I more or less just assume that couples are having sex. Sure. So that's a different way to say the worldview I grew up with is, I think, seeing it's it, it's day. It's time up. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, so, and then that it has changed for you. That's certainly... Yeah, the, it certainly has been more complicated. Yeah. So, um, yeah, 
I have lots to say, but I want to pause there and see if you have a response at this point. Um, can you go over the five points really quickly again? Okay, sex, sex is good, number five. I'm yeah. pulling it back up. Um, sex is complicated. The more we admit that, the better off we'll be. Uh-huh. I'm going backwards now. Uh, well, I can't now because the one point's predict. So number one, I do think sex outside the context of a covenantally committed relationship can be damaging. Yes. Number two, which is probably the most controversial thing is that. Do you think so? Well, I don't think many people will agree with me that are under 30. Maybe even 35. Uh, number two, um, I, that being said, I can't find for a, te- you, a text. Yeah, in my opinion, that you can string together things and yeah. come up with a pretty robust vision for the Jewish ideal of marriage, I think. Yeah. But, um, and then number three, beyond that, the Bible offers confusing, sometimes violent, and dangerous picture of sex, which is different than yes. condoning that violence. Sure. Um,. I think I think those are all really interesting points. Um, one of the things you know, moving sort of out of evangelicism, evangelicalism. There you go. Thank you. Uh, for me, is like uh, so many things that I was taught in like youth group or whatever, um, and in general. So this would be one of those things: things about sex, things about purity culture. Um, realizing one of the tricky things about sort of deconstructing, I suppose, is realizing that a number of those things were that there's not really an explicit text or piece of scripture that says like sex before marriage is bad. Um, and I, I think that has proven to be a hard part of deconstruction for me, just in that it has led to sort of, I mean, I've been lucky in that my parents, nobody at home, my mom sort of was like, it seems the things you're saying now, like she was saying, like, if you're going to have sex, let me know. Let's talk about it. I want you to do that safely. Um, Did she, uh, to press you, was obviously she's being supportive and saying, like, let's be safe first and foremost. But was she also hedging and saying, but maybe don't because I think that's bad? Or was there no judgment about doing it either way? (laughs) No, no, there was, it was really like, um, make the choices you're going to make for yourself, but let me know so that we can okay. make good ones. So she wasn't trying to coach you morally one way or another? No. Okay. No, and this is a, I mean, I can't remember if we touched on this at all last week, but um, my parents have what I would call certainly like a more progressive worldview. Uh-huh. Um, and so... A lot of things that I feel like now my friends are saying, like, I want to develop this for my as I'm a parent or as I parent my kids that I think that I'm like, oh, I experienced that as a child. That is what my parents that is how my parents raised me. Um, But also I went to a Southern Baptist church. And so at church, I was certainly being told that, like, sex before marriage was bad. The Bible said that and that it said it explicitly. Um, so for me, I had some room to wiggle around as far as like, it didn't make me distrust, mistrust authority when I found out that like, oh, the Bible maybe doesn't say that explicitly. Um, and it didn't make me mistrust Christianity because my parents were Christ- are Christians. Um, but I do have friends for whom it was like realizing that that's not necessarily what scripture says was hard for them and sort of a breaking point in their relationship with faith. So, um, to give this a little bit of direction, um, I think one of the reasons that I was cautioned in preaching this in a sermon is more or less probably because of the average experience of the evangelical female Mm -hmm. in the 90s and the 2000s. Which was corroborated for me by my sister's response and uh-huh. talking to her. Yeah. Because we grew up with the same parents. Sure. And presumably the same expectations and worldview. Mm-hmm. And yet I, I sensed in her some of the same, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, rejection of of that culture. Or at least the frustration with the disproportionate way that it was maybe received. Um, so that was a pretty clear cue to me. Like, oh yeah, you, you can't experientially understand the damage that this probably had done disproportionately to females. Well, yes, and I certainly wonder, so I'll, I can talk some about, I can speak some about my experience, and then I wonder if you could respond and say like, oh yes, that I also felt like the messaging to me, or like, no, that's not what I was receiving. 
which is to say, I think I can wrap it up pretty quickly. Anytime we talked about sex at church, the message was, it is your responsibility as a woman to stay pure. Uh, And men will try to trick you out of your purity. And that's actually just who they are. And um, they'll do that. And so uh, they might have sex with someone because they can't control themselves. But you, as a woman, must control yourself and control them, which inevitably leads to some form of like, not inevitably, but most of the time, to some form of manipulation. Um, And if you don't, then you are the whore of Babylon and you're worthless and no one will ever want to marry you. And if someone does want to marry you and they, it's probably, they will not be as high of a caliber of person as if you had not had sex originally. Hmm. And males weren't given the same message. Um, it was not my experience that my, uh, male friends at church were experiencing the same. Well, yeah. And I can say like, I, I, I don't have distasteful feelings or retrospectively look at what was taught to me with any kind of scorn. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I went on this journey where I, I read the books. Sure. And Nadia's was the only one who's her book shameless in case people are interested. That was trying to address this with this conversation in mind, right? The other mm-hmm. one, Helen Fisher is an atheist who writes about kind of evolutionary anthropology from a perspective of sex. So she could care less about. But... Um, I did notice after I read the book, the one thing that stuck out with me was evangelicals do name a lot of things sin. Mm-hmm. There was a very clear, disproportionate attention paid to this particular thing yeah. within the, the world I grew up in. Yeah. Like there was a much graver concern about doing that than there was any number of things that you might do to get yourself in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big deal. We're talking about it um, at least once a year, probably twice a year. Do you know what I mean? Like in the fall and in the spring. And then also naturally it's coming up at some sort of like summer camp situation where everyone is like confessing their sins and burning their CDs and all sorts of things also. Did it, did it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So here's my predicament. Okay. Is, well, let me let me tell you about a moment that was very formative for me to start with. And okay. then it's probably sent me on this journey of considering where I am. First of all, so it, it does not appear at any point that I'm trying to speak from my high horse with my convictions. I did not make it until my marriage to have sex. Sure. Um, my wife has been my only sexual partner, and I don't say that as a badge honor, just factually. Right. But we were dating in high school, did not make it there. Um, but nonetheless, I had and maintained some of these convictions I was given about sex. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I'm in a pastor's group about, gosh, it was 10 years ago now, I think. Yeah. So this was, you know, not like, I mean, the world just changes so fast. So like 10 years ago matters now, I think. 2010, yeah, wow. And it was, um, I, I would think, a pretty moderate, maybe little leftish leaning, little rightish leaning group of pastors in Waco. Yeah. And someone very thoughtfully raised this question among us. She says, look, I am at a point where I have, for example... A person who's divorced in their 40s and um, somebody who might be a widow Mm -hmm. right and they're dating and prescribing a sexual ethic for them feels entirely different than trying to do it a for 16 year olds who are dating Mm -hmm. but even 18 to 20 year olds who are about to be married or engaged right and I remember thinking that thinking yes I have been in those moments giving carrying the worldview I carry and also squirming with the Discomfort of the ineptitude of mm-hmm. the, the prescription to really take seriously the state of affairs these people find themselves in. Right. Yeah. And so I, you know, I was kind of asked myself, well, what's missing? Why can't I make sense of this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you posing that question right no, now? No, I'm just telling you how yeah. my journey unfolded yeah. and how I got here. Um, yeah, so that caused. Yeah, and so let me then follow thought. up with this. Um, so I so it might be helpful for listeners that care. Uh-huh. If you let me ask you this: if you had to paint a spectrum from uh-huh. conservative to liberal, knowing that uh, of the the staff we're all probably in a spectrum compared to a very larger spectrum, but sure. on our microcosm of spectrum, sure. Where do you think the liberal conservative would fall? What do you mean? Like who, where would you put who where? 
Well, that's so tricky. Uh, I would say probably you are the most conservative of all of us, I think. Okay. And then maybe... <laughs> I wasn't prepared to do this. And then maybe... Well, but I feel like you and Toph, it's like yeah. there's different spots. Right. And then I think I sort of feel similarly about me and Jamie in that it's like there are places where he is more progressive than I am and places where I am more progressive yeah, than I he think is. I would agree with that 100%. Okay. So I didn't put the words in your mouth. Okay. I think that's helpful to frame this though because I feel like I'm the most conservative person on staff mm-hmm. on a number of issues, maybe on sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so um, I have been looking for ways to articulate what I think is the merits of the complicated nature of what has been said about the evangelical worldview. Mm-hmm. And I think I found it and I'd okay. like to play it for us. Yes. So uh, Helen Fisher, who I mentioned, I read her book. I first heard her interviewed on Krista Being or Krista Tippett's program on Being. Mm-hmm. Now to frame this, and this is just you know me well enough to know I think she is an atheist. Okay. Um, she works for Match. dot com as kind of the lead scientist. Okay. And how they're offering a product. Interesting. I know, very fascinating. Um, and she studies the anthropology of sex, and from that perspective, right? So mm-hmm. she thinks about dopamine and serotonin and. Um, evolutionary need and that's how she answers these questions why do we cheat what do we do? Okay, yeah. listen to this exchange between the two of them um, talking about what we're talking about okay another thing from your science that I was applying to that is you talked about how casual sex doesn't really remain casual it's not casual um, Unless and, you're so and, and, and why and why I mean how you can explain it it's because of what what is set off in your right. brain and your body conspires to make you start feeling attached to this person or in love or, or in love yeah right and you know i mean any when you when you have an orgasm you get a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin and these are the basic bodily and brain systems for attachment right it's like so, what mothers get went to and they love their babies yeah it's yeah i mean don't primal. have sex with somebody you don't want to feel something for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, people can do what they want to do. I'm not in the should business. But the bottom line is, if you don't want to get attached to somebody, it's easier to not sleep with them. <laughs> right. <laughs> because you might end up being attached to somebody who really does not fit into your life. And I think as, again, in this new world, I mean, I grew up in a very uh, conservative, strict, um, southern, you know, small town where you were saving yourself for marriage. Right. Like, and this was just an absolute. Right. Um, and, and, you know, now I kind of look back on that and see it as uh, helpful in a way. Like, mm-hmm. it provided boundaries that were good so that you right. didn't. I mean, I actually see these rules at a point. Right. Human animal needs yeah. boundaries. Right. And here we are in a society now where we don't have any rules. Right. Nobody knows what to do. Right. And even in very religious cultures like that, where people are kind of crafting their path towards marriage with these religious rules, yeah, I still think all the messages that are coming at them about who you marry and about the romance of that are coming from movies with happy endings. Yeah. And, you know, all the love songs that yeah. we just, you know, that just were awash in right. at that age. I and I wanted to ask yeah. you about that because I I guess one of my kind of deeper concerns here in this subject is that somehow, um, I love your idea that, you know, this knowledge is power. And somehow our brains take us through these several very powerful stages to getting to the point of being with other people, that somehow we need to figure out how to be intelligent and caring in this matter of long-term love. And it right. seems like we have almost... It seems like our brains don't do that for That's us. That's such a good point. Because, you know, Amer- okay. okay. So, there's me, feeling like I'm the most conservative person on the spectrum, saying, but hey, look, here's a pagan atheist... <laughs> who doesn't have any religious cares, saying that at least there should be a concern here. Well, for the record, I don't think there's anybody on staff, certainly not me, as potentially maybe the most progressive person, who feels like um, we should be telling people... Obviously, like, I'm the children's pastor. <laughs> like, I don't think there's anybody on staff who's like, would say to our youths, like, yeah, do it with whoever. Like, um, nobody feels that way. I think that... 
one of the things that I appreciated so much about what she was saying and, um, you know, I'm already imagining as like I, you know, potentially as I develop ways to talk to um, like our, you know, our Christians who are growing up as teenagers or whatever, is that it's like it's Pharisaic to say just don't, you know, like Mm -hmm. especially when there's not really a text in scripture that says that. Uh, but there is wisdom in saying um, to anyone, like, well, this is, a, this is a thing. Sex is a thing that we have to be careful about. And we have to make good and careful choices about it. And, you know, if you're talking to a 17-year-old, then you're saying, like, you've got eight years before your brain is done developing. So, like, maybe... Uh, you know, I know, it, you know, we talk about or the one thing we should be talking about as Christians is like we are all tempted all the time and we should and we are all like making dis- trying to make disciplined choices about what is best for our bodies and our formation. And I think a way to honor that more is to say, you know, like, well, the science tells us that when you have sex with someone, your your body begins to think you're in love with that person and if that's not the relationship that you have with that person is a loving, intimate, mutual, reciprocal relationship, then you are putting yourself in a dangerous place. And so rather to say that as opposed to like, just don't do it, is like obviously one of those ways has much more respect for a person than the other does, you know? Yeah, and I think one of the things that the evangelical articulation of this could have done better was not only taken more seriously, the person desiring to have sex, mm-hmm. but, um, taking, uh, kind of gauging the, the magnitude of that instinct and desire. Yeah. Um, cause we, like you, you alluded to the brain's not done being formed. And so mm-hmm. those emotions and those feelings can be extra confusing. Yeah. And I think one of the, the genius, um, or part of the genius of Romeo and Juliet is like that's really what's at stake. Yeah. Are those kinds of emotions and those yeah. kinds of feelings. That's and so to just true. just to stifle them may not produce the kind of result we think that we want. No. Well and you know, teenagers are like they love to ask questions. They think everyone else is stupid and that they've got all the answers. But when you can say to them like, No, I really have the answer on this. You know what I mean? I'm not just telling you not to do it because um, you know, because I don't want you to. Like I am saying it could be it could be bad for you and not just in that like it might it'll make you into a whore or that it'll whatever but because i'm con- out of concern for you i am sharing that you should make a better decision for yourself that's compelling yeah um it was interesting one of the other voices i had been listening to in this process was peggy ornstein she just wrote a book on Boys and Sex, I think that's the title or something. But one of the things she says, and I think this is really tragic, but also um, sort of uh, diagnostic of how we actually feel about this mm-hmm. is in what's now called hookup culture, sure. which I guess just means that there's just no prior relationship required to have a tryst. Right. Um, that people, tryst. well, I, yeah, I see that word in their writing. So yeah. I use um, is that people very often will get intoxicated before that moment to yeah. push out the memory of what actually happens. Which, how dumb is that? Well, she said, if you're so drunk you can't remember it, then your body will not give you those things. But then it's like, if you're so drunk you can't remember it. And why are we getting drunk before that moment? Yes, exactly. What, what emotionally is happening that we're not dealing it with? seems like a lot of repression. Yeah. A lot of, interesting, it's a lot of repression inside of a culture that is pretending to pride itself on freedom. Yes, and I'm glad you said pretending. Yeah, because it's not real freedom if you're actually having to repress everything. So how how could you, how would you speak to a child about this issue now? I mean, I can think of sort of the motifs I'd want to address, but I don't know. You mean like a teenager? Yeah. I'm not really counseling children to Sorry. have sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. But Wait. that's other murky water that like. Is like at what age? is? So this? we have legal guidelines, which are, of course, should be abided by. Yeah. But for example, so Lindsay and I had sex when she was 16 and I was 17. Because I was a male, I think I could have got charged with statutory rape. In the. In the state. In of, the state you were in. Yeah. And. You know, if if I had been 18, I certainly could have and probably may not have been a choice of anybody at that point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that is also an interesting thing. I think... Um, so the question was how to speak to... How to speak to this. I think uh, mostly... Well, mostly I think that uh, one thing that is missing a lot from current um, evangelical culture is, well, that there is a general sense of sort of Gnosticism, which is like in my, well, part of that is like a disregard for the body. Do you know what I mean? Which is to say that like we talk a lot about the spiritual realm and how those things matter, but... I think if you begin early, so this is something that you're talking about with kids. We're talking about consent, right? And about like their bodies and about how they get to make choices about their bodies and what their bodies do. And we're hopefully teaching them also to make good choices about what they do with their bodies. And so then, you know, as a child goes through puberty and eventually becomes, um, sexually active like then you can begin having you're continuing a conversation as opposed to like introducing something new you're continuing the conversation about making good choices with your body and making healthy choices for yourself and also healthy choices for the community around you and healthy choices for like the person that you are in a romantic relationship with and at some point you know I'm not a parent so I don't know at what point you make this decision, but at some point you let children, you let teenagers, young adults, begin making those choices for themselves. And so you have to kind of release that at some point. Um, well, and I don't think that's always clear to parents when that's supposed to happen. Yeah. And there's usually a two to three really contentious period in that relationship where they're both trying yeah. to establish those boundaries. Well, yes, where a young adult is saying, like, I am starting to get to make these choices for myself. And a parent is saying, like, no, you are not. Yeah. Um, and that's hard. And also, I'd imagine that there's a lot of times that it's one of those situations where both both parties are right in different circumstances, you know? Like, sometimes a teenager's like, I get to make this choice. And really... A parent should back off and let them. Um, and then there's some situations where they're like, I get to make this choice. And it's like, no, they're not old enough to do that yet. So. Yeah. I think another really hard thing about constructing a modern worldview mm-hmm. is the massive gap in sexual norms um, between the biblical period, old or new. Oh, sure. And where we are today. So, for yeah. example, um, Mary and Joseph mm-hmm. probably wouldn't be Mary and Joseph today in most Western countries. Um, and by that you I mean, mean age wise, yeah, it yeah. wouldn't work in the very least. Uh, Joseph would be creepy. Well, she's like 14. Well, that's the thing, I don't know for sure, but right. we could assume, right? Yeah, that that kind of age at best, and he's like at worst, he's illegal, you know what I mean, right? Yeah, um, and then you have characters like David and Bathsheba, right? Well, that still it, is bad, right? But we don't speak very honestly about that in the church, no, yeah, and and yet we're trying to prescribe an ethic based on a biblical view of sex. No, yeah, Kathleen told me recently about a sermon she heard where the guy was saying, like, it was Bathsheba's fault for bathing on a roof. Oh. And it's like, what? That's not at all. Where did you, why do you think that's what's happening here? Yeah. So. Um, so I think what I would want to say mm-hmm. to address the motifs is I use the language of covenantal relationship as opposed to marriage. Because I think sure. wedding, marriage, few of these things we need to acknowledge are 21st century kind of western creations right yeah um and i can grant that there are forms of relationship that i am not familiar with but give the notion of what i would hope covenant would yeah i also think so i would want to say to someone you know i hope that your relationship is committed Mm -hmm. i would want to say um sex isn't bad right um and if if you engage in a sexual act and you break up with that person neither of you are less for it right um, but also, I hope you take this very seriously. Right. And that um, it isn't casual. Yeah. I think that... I think that is where I am as well. I, like, I don't... Again, I, you know, I don't get to make choices for the humans. They get to do that for themselves. But casual sex, just purely based on this... Like, even if I took all of my belief out of it and just based it on, like, scientific knowledge it seems that it is not a healthy choice for certainly for a person like me who is very emotional. And, um, but when you integrate your, my belief into that, it is like, I do think that one of the things that is important to Christian belief is the idea that bodies are important and the things that we do with them are important. And we need to be making 
those choices um, not casually or flippantly, but in ways that honor our bodies and ourselves and God who created us. Yeah. I also am wondering too, like I, I just finished that Richard Rohr book about male initiation mm-hmm. and as a kind of a larger theme of a takeaway, just how important ritual is to our bodies mm-hmm. and our psyches. Yeah. And so we have wedding. Mm-hmm. We have a court document to say we're divorced. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me we could probably find a way to inner communities name and move through the large emotions that we accumulate from our sexual experiences. Yeah. And that would probably be healthy for, for us as humans. Yeah. And to normalize a culture where the way we speak and think about these things isn't so disproportionately different between men and women. Yeah. That would be helpful too. That would be really helpful. Yeah. I think because that would probably remove a lot of the shame for. Yeah. Well, I mean, because a lot of most, well, most women who are raised in an evangelical context, I think I feel comfortable using the word most carry a lot of shame because of what they were told and taught. Do you know what I mean? It's not necessarily inherent. It is sort of societal and cultural as well, but a lot of it comes from, teaching that they received at the hands of the church probably men and so well sometimes yeah they i guess they were usually good about bringing in teachers to talk, or females to t- yeah talk about, talk about it yeah it was generally a gendered moment um and you know i don't think men are the only people who perpetuate sexual shame onto women like women as well like you know everybody can get up on their high horse about what their sexual choices were as opposed to someone else who they view as making a worse choice than them right it's like it's not just men that call women like sluts women also do that as well which isn't great okay taylor guess what what it's your week to pick the text of terror the text of terror i already have one of those you already oh great that's right please did you, did you not listen to our episode no i week? did i did okay. of course i listened to it embarrassingly multiple times thank you Text of Terror. Okay, I don't know what it is this week. You get to pick. Yes, I got I got to pick. So I chose, um, uh, well, I chose Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22. Oh, what a good one. Oh, thank you. Good choice. Um, yeah. And this is... It's like almost a scary one. And also, I felt like it's an obvious one. Do you know what I mean? I feel yeah. like this one comes up when people talk about um, texts from the Bible that are hard to unpack. So, um, for those of you who don't know, Genesis 22, do you want to do a quick telling of the story? Yes. Um, so, Genesis 22 is God tells Abraham to take Isaac up a mountain and sacrifice him basically um and then at the last minute uh, so he does that he goes with his servants and isaac and takes him up a mountain and is about like has him tied to an altar and is about to sacrifice him and uh at the last minute god says like look look up and uh there's a a goat a ram an animal a ram in the thicket yeah um in a th- caught in a thicket and god is like now i know that i can really trust you and you'll do anything for me um but don't actually sacrifice your son here is this other animal you can sacrifice so i mean that's hard it's hard to unpack what the meaning of that is and what god calls us to yeah so what do you do um you know, there's so many different takes on this because it is such a hard thing to unpack. Um, I think certainly at the very least in my mind, I tell myself that obviously that was like always the plan. Abraham was never going to have to sacrifice Isaac, which is a comfort. Um, but then when you think about like Isaac's trauma after that and the fact that they don't really communicate much post that it does seem cruel to to put Isaac in that situation and I don't I don't always know what to do with that 
Yeah. I This is fresher on my mind because I preached it within the last couple of months. It was mm-hmm. up in the lectionary. And it's it seems to me one of the kind of seminal texts in scripture um, in terms of exploring religion, religion developing, figuring out what this is going to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've heard me do the fourfold develop faith development thing mm-hmm. with the different phases. So, you, um, I, and I kind of think that this text lends itself to a good example of how that movement can happen in those stages of formation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think there's still something beautiful. I think one, you know, we, these, these texts force us to talk about inspiration and in a ways that are uncomfortable. Yeah. I actually think one of the strengths of scripture as a whole is the typological nature of the, the narrative. This being, of course, one of the more salient moments where you have Isaac, the would-be son sacrifice, who gets off the hook at the last minute, and then we get to the New Testament that doesn't happen. Right. I think that is a very cursory understanding of the text that is very powerful, especially for young people. Yeah. Um, and I also think that you can take that a little further into a moral lesson and say, um, what does God ask us to sacrifice in our lives? Right. And... I like that it names very quickly for us that this is a high stakes religion. Right. And I think that's true. Yeah. Um, then beyond that is sort of the social psychological where we get to the deconstruction, which you named is their relationship is one of silence after this. Yeah. And then the mystical one too, is Kierkegaard points out Abraham and God don't talk after this ever again, right. at least in the text. Right. Which, um, you know, we're, we're given sort of the theological benefit of the doubt and that Abraham articulates at the beginning of the story that God will provide a sacrifice. Right. And so, you know, I think it's not disingenuous to ascribe that kind of confidence to Abraham throughout the story. Nonetheless, um, even to suggest that this is what God is asking of Abraham is um, monumental, powerful, and potentially damaging. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think in some ways it's like, so what God is asking of Abraham obviously is belief um, and belief that that belief seems to come through in Abraham's life in this declaration that God will provide a sacrifice. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, even if that's like at that point he's lying, do you know what I mean? Or whatever he's doing, that it seems that and on some level, he is saying at the bare minimum, like, I can trust that I will do this. And God is not like, I don't know what he's thinking, that God will bring Isaac back to life, that there will be some sort of ram in a thicket somewhere. Um, but that, as you said, that it's like, this is a full, I need all of your cards on the table. I need everything that you are to believe in this relationship. Call. And that's crazy to think about, um, especially when you get to the psychological nature of it. But it also is, you know, I think true about the, it is truly descriptive of the nature of what Christianity is calling people to, which is like a full 100% life commitment. Yeah. Even though, I mean, this is technically Old Testament stuff, so Judaism as well. Two thing, two more readings I think are worth mentioning. The one is that the um, the the whole moment is created, and then you know it's the type scene type scene thing where you have a slight change in the story, right. which then turns out to be a rebuke of a competing culture where children were being sacrificed. Right. And so this is a God who, at the last minute, is disinterested in you sacrificing your children. Right. I think that's a powerful read. The one yeah. I just heard Nadia Boltz Weber give Dax an armchair expert. Uh-huh. I think it was in response to this text was that. Um, and I think this is kind of spurning evangelicals a little bit in their personal relationship stuff, but sure. be careful what you ask for if you want a personal rela- personal relationship with God. Yeah. And that God is jealous and might ask for more than you're willing to give. Um, to kind of, I think, an effort to restore some of the reverence that is sometimes lost in the... In the personal relationship yeah. sort of conversation. I, I like Midrash, so I'm open to that yeah. reading. That is interesting. I hadn't heard that. Okay, we're at 15 minutes. We have one thing left. Oh, gosh. Okay. The NBA. The NBA. Wow. Can we talk about Anthony Davis for a second? That three-pointer? Yes. Can I tell you, I was actually, um, of course, it wasn't disappointing. I was excited for him, but like, I just don't think that's going to be a legacy-building moment, so you, it's not a good narrative. You don't think so? No, because he'll never do it again. So like, this is obscure, but I was thinking, 
it's not like we're going to begin to think of Anthony Davis as the buzzer-beating, game-clutch kind of Kobe Jordan figure. He did this once. If he takes that shot ten more times, he makes it twice. And, I mean, it is what it is. If if LeBron made that shot. I do think being clutch is different than making the shot, for the record. I think it's more of a attitude, right? So this is very, like... That's so the thing Kobe, that was <laughs> Kobe like Black Mamba like well he makes his team win. Do you know what I mean? And Kobe did a lot of that by like taking something on to himself. Uh-huh. But that's not how you have to like uh LeBron gets a lot of crap I think for like um not always being the guy to take the shot or whatever. Mm-hmm. But LeBron's basketball IQ is so high. Yeah. And like the level of a teammate that he is. Like he's such a good teammate. And not just in that he's like a nice dude or whatever. But in that he's like, he is going to make the team win. He will put you. I mean, you think about the Cavs in like, what was like 2017? Yeah. Like that's like he full on was like, okay, I see the score and I'm gonna make myself win. Like, I'm gonna take this team. I'm gonna put them on my back, and we are going to win the championship. And I think that Anthony Davis could develop something like that. I mean, I think you're right in that he's no Kobe. He's not gonna be like making buzzer beaters every second of every day of every game. Obviously, you can't make them every second. There's only one second when you can make a buzzer beater. But he, I think he could be the kind of player that is like. Just full on, like, I'm taking you guys with me across the finish line and we're going to win. Yeah, I, I'll give him the, I think Anthony Davis can make a team win. Uh-huh. I just don't think, I mean, when, when are big men game finishers? Well. So if he makes them win, it'll be in the same way Tim Duncan made them win. Yes. It was just relentless. For the record, I saw someone the other day say that Anthony Davis was better than Tim Duncan, and I was mm, he's got some stuff to prove. Very that. mad. Yeah. Not because that couldn't one day be true, yeah, but it's no. not true right now. Um. Yeah. I just. I, it was a. It was every bit of heroic and awesome as you might hope it was. I just don't think it's a legacy building moment for Davis. Yeah. He's going to be a guy whose team That's wins by fair. ten points because he had twenty twenty. I know. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But it was still amazing. And also, well, this is getting us off topic, but it was amazing. It was like, you know, we didn't have sports for so long. Yeah. And then on Sunday, the Cowboys beat the Falcons. Oh, in, my gosh. I mean, just like what was amazing to watch fashion. And then this three-pointer happened, and I was just like over the moon, losing my mind about like. Are you, you rooting for the Lakers? What a great question uh, that I don't know that I have the answer to. I don't know why, but I don't like the Nuggets, and I never have. And there's no – I can't find, like, a, I've thought about it. Like, I can't find a reason in my brain, but I just don't really like them. Like, the team, the franchise, I never have. But yeah. also, am I rooting for the Lakers? What an interesting question. You know, my relationship with LeBron James has been has like changed greatly over the yeah. years. As I think he has matured yeah. and turned into like obviously a really great person. He's always been a really great basketball player. He like at this point it's very obvious that he is also like a very kind, thoughtful, committed person. And so maybe I am rooting for the Lakers, which is a crazy thing. I never well, you know, I think the NBA of the major league sports is the one where you really, the team can be an individual. Yeah. Like it's not possible in baseball and football. No, yeah. And so um, to that end, I do like LeBron James. Yeah. I, you, you know, you couldn't have said it better. His basketball IQ is, it's so hard. So it just, high. you you got to respect his ability in his game at this point. Yeah. So if he, it's like if the Lakers won, I'd be happy for him. That being said, I hate the Lakers. I hate yeah. the organization. Yeah. I hate the franchise. Yes. I hate that every good player goes there. Yes. Um, no, I'm totally with you. So I, I do like the Nuggets. Um, Jokic, is that how you say it? Yeah. Well, yeah, close and enough. Murray. I, don't quite know. I mean, I think they're sound. I, I can't believe their resilience down yeah. 3 1 twice. That's, That's exciting. That's crazy. The other thing is, the East is exciting to me in that it's a three and a four seed. Um, The Celtics in the Heat? Yeah. And that it's not the one. Well, I wish it was the one seed because it's the Bucks. But what was uh, what were the Nuggets? Nuggets were three. Okay. So I researched this once. There's been very few times, if any, 
I think until the Cleveland did it that year, they were a four seed. A four seed had never made the finals. Really? It always been a three seed or higher. And it, mostly because of this, the seven game set, it's almost always one and two seeds. Yeah. Which for me is one of the arguments why NBA is not exciting. It's because it filters out and the best teams always do get there. Yeah. There's no, like the, the NCAA tournament is so great. Yes. There's so Amazing. much excitement and every yeah. game mattered. But like, it's, you know, you the surprise was the reason it's so exciting is because the Clippers lost. Right. In the yeah. box. It's like you got a real argument for doing it in the bubble playoff forever. Um, yeah. Although I do know a number of the players have said like just recently they have thought like I miss fans like I miss playing for our fans or whatever, yeah. which is sweet. Um, and also I feel like a lot of football conversations have been about like could do fans is there a real like home court home field advantage? Yep. Um, which might mean some different teams win games. Yeah, I think so. That it's like this playoff, this finals could like go in a different direction than it would have yeah. if they were playing in front of fans, which I think is so fascinating to think about. Also, I hate the Celtics. I kind of do too, and I, I want to like them because I like Boston, and I but like yeah, I don't know the city of Boston. I love. Yeah, the, I, I kind of with you. I don't know why I hate them too, because you know what? I usually want teams to excel that are like team teams, uh-huh. and they're a team team. Yeah, you have um, what's his? You have Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, but none of those guys on their own are. They're all like right. they'd be twos on a lot of teams. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but they're winning games. Shaq gave um, Dirk a big shout out the other day. For like staying in Dallas and doing it on his own. Do That's you know so respectable. Mean? And yeah, and never like going and joining other other big superstars or whatever, or bringing yeah anybody else. And I loved it because That's so true. Dirk I- always got a lot of crap for being soft, like through a lot of his career. That's what people would say. Mm-hmm. And then it feels like starting right before he retired, really, everyone all of a sudden was like. Yeah. We love Dirk. And I was like, well, oh, the I verdict's out. Clear Hall of Fame career. Right. N- now the seventh time all-time leading scorer, because I think somebody else passed yeah. recently. Yeah. Uh, but just, and a good guy, it seems like. Yeah, really great guy. So, yeah, I like Dirk. And he and did he do it. And he stayed in Dallas. Didn't they have, they had Kid at that, in that run, didn't they? Or was he not there? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, a superstar, but not at that point in his uh, career. Jason Kidd, Tyson Chandler. Jason Terry. Jason Terry. Yeah. And, so like I a, mean, a like, pretty good cast, kind of like yeah. the Celtics. Yeah, not it wasn't like, he, yeah, he wasn't on his own. Obviously, it's, they have to be five people. On the I court. also think the NBA is interesting in that at some point um, there's a diminishing return on players' abilities if you put too much talent on one team. Yeah, I think that happened to Chris Bosh in Miami for sure. Yeah, it happened to Kevin Love in Cleveland. Yeah, where you have number ones on teams that are high caliber mm-hmm. first or second team all NBAers who kind of are diminished it, it worked out for Draymond it's to the opposite in his case where you have Clay clear number one or Stefan number one Clay and then Draymond clear number three and such a great role player almost yeah. like a Rodman figure yes who um but when those guys disappeared so did his kind of ability do you think they'll um like some at some point there will be like a documentary about the Golden State Warriors and like the well, there's another organization who grew all three of those guys. Yeah, the KD championships are garbage in my mind, but the, the ones without right. them, they did it the right way. Yeah, absolutely. That's how I feel as well. Yeah. Was it more than one? It was just one KD championship, right? Or I, was there two? They got there four years in a row. They won two. Okay. After was two with KD? I don't remember. I can't remember either. But maybe it was one he won and they lost the next year then to the Raptors. Yeah. So he was there two years. Oh, yeah. And one, one, lost one. I forgot they lost to the Raptors. That Raptors, um, I mean, they obviously picked up Kawhi and we've learned that yeah. uh, S- S- Pascal Seacom, is that it? Uh-huh. Saikim is a lot better than we knew, as right. is Lowry. Right. But what a, that was another great surprising. I love it. It's my yeah. favorite thing when it's not like, you know. We all love a David and Goliath situation. You know what the best NBA Finals David and Goliath was? What? Where, again, after the factor, I was like, well, maybe that team is better than I thought. It was Miami Heat, the Dallas Mavericks in 2011. That was, that was up there. Another great one, though, was the, I think it was 04 Pistons Lakers. Yeah. Where that Ben Wallace, Rasheed Wallace, Rip Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Who is that guard who came out of nowhere? You know. But anyways, that team. Yeah was supposed to get obliterated by Shaq and Kobe and ended up winning like in five oh games. Oh my gosh. It was so awesome. It's amazing. 
They might have swept him. I don't remember. I just remember we were all stunned. It's my favorite. Chauncey thing. Billups. He was the guard. Ah! Chauncey Billups. What and they, a great guy. And their shooting guard was good, too. Like, the whole team. Yeah. Was, oh, Tayshawn Prince was the was small like forward. It was like a team team. Yeah, it was a team team. A couple of guys who might have been ones elsewhere, but were yeah. all equal on that team. It was. So, we'll see. We'll see. All right. Taylor, so thanks for another edition of It Was Either This or. Okay.